This morning we will be reading from the New Testament from the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, we are beginning today, as Alice said, uh, in the New Testament, our new series, uh, and I'm excited to, on this fall kickoff Sunday, to begin the letter of 1 Thessalonians with you. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to go through an epistle, which is a word, another word for a letter with you. We have not done that in a little while. I think 1 John might have been the last one uh, a year ago. Uh, this letter, though, the 1 Thessalonians was written to this church that you heard mentioned in the beginning, a church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a, uh, a city, the capital city of a Roman province in modern-day Greece. So this letter is about the gospel breaking into Europe from the area where the Jews were from in Palestine, the Mediterranean area there, the Middle East, breaking in, into Greece, into Europe through the Apostle Paul. Let me pray for us for just a moment. Lord, open this letter to us. Spirit, use me in your word, even as this passage says you do. The joy of the Holy Spirit that Paul wrote, bring that to us today. And transform us through today, not only this Sunday, in real time right now, transform us, but, so, uh, but through this letter, so that we come out on the other side of this letter seeing and asking, how am I different from hearing this letter preached it's Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So my challenge for us, here's my challenge for you as we go through this letter. My challenge for you as we go through this letter is I want all of us, all of you to remember that this was a letter written to a church 
This was written to a church. Now, of course, we're going to see it's a church made up of individual people as we're sitting around these tables today or watching at home. But the mindset of Paul at this time as he writes this letter would have been much more corporate than our kind of uh, contemporary, modern view of kind of the autonomous, uh, expressive individual as some sociologists and psychologists have described our day, the age of autonomous, expressive individualism. Paul would not have seen the world like that. And actually the people receiving this letter would not have seen the world through that kind of lens. They would have read it as the church. So that's my challenge, that as we look at this, he's writing to a local body that we too will apply and discuss it as a church. Of course, there's going to be implications for your personal life as well, but let's not forget that as we go through it. We're going to let this letter guide us, Bethany Church, this fall, to see how we are to live together, together as disciples, while we wait for Jesus' return with a longing for tomorrow. It's the subtitle of our series. And then so, because of that, shape our practice of discipleship as a church, as a local body, grow in our mission of helping people follow Jesus. If you call Bethany Church your home, that's my challenge for you. If you call it your home church, this fall, that's my challenge to see how to live together today while we wait for Jesus' return and long for it tomorrow. And so then shape our life together, um, collectively. And, and fall kickoff reminds us of this collective uh, church setting as we have our, all our kids in here today kind of spread out throughout the uh, congregation. Are kids in there? Raise your hand if you're here today. I'm going to need actually some help from some kids. Oh, I see some nervous looks on some faces out there. But I'm going to need some help from some kids to get us going on this book of 1 Thessalonians. We hand it out to you, a sheet that has on it some codes, and we ask you to break those codes for us. So I need like 10 people, or eight actually, there's eight on there I think, to come up. So I'm going to come pick you and grab a couple of you. Let's have a couple maybe Grover boys want to come up front. Let's have you. And Jack, you want to come up front. Ava, come on up front. How many is that? Four. We need a few more. Any big kids want to help? Adrian? No? Uh, <laughs> Uh, come on up. Huxley, you want to come? Um, you can come help us with one. And, oh, let's get you two over here. Uh, we'll have you come. Sam, you can stay. You, what, tell, tell me your name again. Laura. Laura. Come up, Laura. All right. So these codes that you broke for us, do you know what they are? They are the, the words are the big themes or the big messages of this book of 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to come down the line. One, two, five, six. Perfect. Eight. We got eight exactly. And I'm going to have you read, if you can, or tell us what, when I get to you, I'll point on your paper too. You can stare right there. And I want to also listen. These are the, the big themes we're going to go through in this book as they've de- uh, decoded these uh, codes for us. Why don't you start with your first one? What's that first one? Giving thanks. Giving thanks. Giving thanks. Good. What's the second one on there? Imitators. Imitators. Okay. What does that mean? That's kind of a weird word. Imitators. Word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. What's our next one? Here, you can look at it right here, Neum. The gospel. Okay. Oh, you got a big one, Huxley. Can you say that word? No. I didn't think so. (laughs) That big word is sanctification. Now, can you say it? Probably not still, huh? Yeah, you got it. All right, what's yours? Faith. 
you got an easy one. Faith, sanctification of faith. Okay, what's yours? I'm not done. Oh, let's see. We get it here. There it is. Okay. Love one another. There you go. Love one another. Did you get the last one? Yes. Jesus, uh, uh. Jesus is. There you Jesus go. Jesus is. Um, return. Return. There you go. Jesus is That's That might be the best one. Let's give them a round of applause for helping us out today. You guys can go grab your seat. If you finish that today and you bring it out to the counter, did we, we have a prize for them today if they bring it out? Uh, Mrs. Horton, our children's director, if you finish that, take it out to the counter in the gathering place after, and she's got a prize for you. You can exchange it for a prize. So grab your outline. Those are some of our themes we're going to be going through in this book. Grab your outline. We're going to move fast through them today. Have a pen handy and a text open, a book, tablet, or phone. Let's look at a brief background here. Who is this church? Who is the Thessalonian, the Thessalonica, say that fast, Thessalonica church, who are they? They stood out as a young, a persecuted church, and an outwardly missional church. Before we jump into our three kind of truths today, who were they? This is who they were. They were young, not in age, young in faith, persecuted church, and an outwardly missional church. Paul was a church planner, and in about AD 49, he planted a church there in this city amongst a Jewish synagogue, and a group of Jews and some believing Gentiles became Christians, and they organized a young church there, and they faced a lot of opposition early on. If you wanted to get to the background, read Acts 17 this week. It's pretty simple background, but, but powerful nonetheless. As they organized a church and faced this opposition, it was so great that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to flee for their lives. And after Paul leaves the church, he continues to face persecution for starting this Thessalonian church. He still faced persecution, but they were radically missional in their persecution, in their suffering. They were an outwardly gospel-spreading church. So he sends Timothy back to them within the year to see how they're doing. And Timothy comes back to Paul with a report about a year from planting the church. And this letter is Paul's response to that young, persecuted, but outwardly missional church. So we're going to see this morning three encouraging words from Paul to us, because here's why this letter matters. Because like the Thessalonians, we too are living in a time where it's getting harder to be a Christian. Or there's a little more cost to carrying the name of Christ with you. Maybe in your workplace or in school for you kids. It's being harder to be labeled a Christian. But we too are also a group of a variety, made up of a variety of Christians at different stages in our faith. We've got some young believers. We've got some in the middle of the road. And we've got some more mature that have been Christians longer. But you know what else too? We also need to grow as a missional gospel, outward thinking, spreading the gospel church. I think any church would, I hope, say we have room to grow in that. So let's see what Paul says to this church because what he says to them matters to us too because we are the church, Bethany Church, as well. So let's look today at these three truths. Here's our first one. First, it's a reminder from Paul. Paul reminds the church, first in these verse 10 verses, who they are and how they are living. Who they are and how they are living. Who they are as Christians, he tells them in these first four verses, and how this, this uh, identity, this new identity has impacted their life, how they're living. So who they are and how they're living. And he clearly lays out in these first four, four verses a definition of what is a Christian. 
Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? And how you can have the assurance, assurance of your faith, of your Christianity, that you are a Christian. How can you have that assurance? He's so confident because of the markers he sees in their lives. That's how he knows, has an assurance for them. That's how we can have an assurance. The markers he sees in their life. Look at verses 4 and 5 there. As Paul in chapter 1 says, We know, brothers, we know you. We know, brothers, that you are loved by God and that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He says, look, I know you are brothers and sisters. I know this, Thessalonians. I know this. I know the gospel, he says in verse 5. I know it's come to you. I can see proof of it. I have assurance that the power of, power of the Holy Spirit has rested on you as a church. You see, the gospel to Paul, it actually wasn't the qualities, the characteristics we're going to look at in a minute. We're going to look at those. The gospel, though, to Paul, it wasn't the moral reformation that would take place in those people, although it would. It resulted in that. But the gospel to Paul was an identity those Thessalonians had, who they were. The gospel was who they were in God, is the words Paul even uses in the verses there, in God. You see, many people, even some of those who profess faith, they confuse the gospel with the results of the powerful gospel. Or to put it with that big word that Huxley had, they, they confuse the justification, our salvation, they confuse it with the sanctification, our ongoing moral gro growth. They confuse the two. The gospel, he says in these verses, he said, it came to them. The gospel comes to them. Do you see it in verse 5 there? Look down at your text. It came to them. In other words, what he's saying is the gospel has a life of its own. It's got a power of its own. Through the Spirit, it stirs things up in the life of a church. That's what the gospel is. And he summarizes it so clearly in verses 9 and 10. We'll look at it in a minute. I mean, there's a good, great summary of the gospel. But Paul says this same truth in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's, he's saying it there. The gospel's got a power, a life of its own. It's not just the, the moral reformation in your life. It's not keeping the law or the good, the good things of, of God, although those are, those are important. It's about the law keeper himself, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. It came to them, he said in Romans, it's the power of God for salvation. That means this gospel matters, doesn't it? The gospel matters. And if it matters, it also matters that we get it right, doesn't it? He also says in 2 Corinthians, there's no slide for this, but listen, he talks about the life he gave them through the gospel in 2 Corinthians and the light of the gospel that's shown to them in the face of Jesus Christ. These are people, Christians, who are in Christ, verses 1 and 4 say. They are in Christ. It means their life, their salvation, their identity has been intimately united with Jesus through his spirit. And Paul says... We know you are Christians. He gives us, I think there's five there. We're going to look at these subpoints. We're doing them a little out of order. We're going to do number four and five and then go back to one through three. But here's the first one he says. He says, I know, you're, I know you're brothers and sisters because you were loved. 
You were loved. It's our first one. They were loved. Actually, number four, I think, on your outline. They were loved. The Thessalonians were loved, which means you are loved by God. He loves you. And that's, it's, it's not just sentimental feeling, which it's, it's not less than that, but he loves you and he's done something because of it, and that's the gospel. He calls them brothers in verse 4. I know the gospel's come to you because he loves you like family. You're my brothers and sisters, Paul says to the, to the readers of this letter. Our gospel has come to you because I know you're loved. And I can see your love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You're loved. And it's from that love, and for Paul, that love was the basis of the second thing he said about this church. God's chosen you. They were chosen by God. It's his very words. The love that, Paul, that God had for these people were the basis of his choice of them. In verse 4 he says, you were chosen by God. The word Paul uses in other places, or other writers in the New Testament, Peter, other places, says you were elected by God, chosen by God. He knows they are real Christians. He knows they're real followers of Christ because the gospel has had a power in dealing with them. It has come to reckon with them. It has come upon them. A lot of times in the church we describe those who are exploring Christianity, those who, maybe you're here today even, are watching online, uh, as they come to Christ for the first time to, to find out about him and look at his word and, 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 he, and seek who he is and what he says and what he did, we will call them seekers, seekers in the church, those who are investigating Christianity, exploring its truth claims, looking at the life of Jesus, and that is all well and true. Please hear me say that. That's all well and true. But ultimately what Paul is saying about the gospel here is that the gospel comes to someone and grabs them. They are grabbed by it. Something happens to them. The gospel comes to you. And in fact, actually, the gospel really investigates them. Not just them investigating the gospel. It has legs. It moves. It walks. It talks. It's got power, he's saying here. It approaches them. There is some power that takes you up when Jesus comes into your life. It's grabbed you. Abraham, I'm choosing you out of all the people of this world. Get up and go out to the land I will show you. You sure, God? <laughs> you sure? Abraham, it's you. Moses, you're living in this nice life as a prince in the palace. I'm coming to choose you to get up and go out and identify with the slaves. Instead of this sweet life of leisure that you have, Moses, I choose you. And he can call you, he can come to you, he can grab you in a thousand different ways. A thousand different ways he can grab a person. It can be through a loss. It could be through a book you give somebody. It could be through an illness. It could be a, fr who, a friend who invited you to church. A failure in your life. It could be through an inner sense of, of hollowness or a friend just sharing Jesus. A thousand ways the gospel can come upon somebody but when he does call you, you know. You know. We know internally, actually, this is how it works. Do you know how many times I've had conversations with new believers? And I've heard something like this. I wasn't even looking for God. 
He found me. I wasn't, even, I wasn't even looking for him. He found me. He grabbed me. He came into my life and just stirred things up. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this in Mere Christianity. He talks about God grabbing a life. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. So all of you, imagine that. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, especially in the Northwest. And so you're not surprised. We need the roof, right? You're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. (laughs) But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I love that. You know, some of you might even say today, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the Son of God and he died for my sins. But has he come into your life and disturbed it, though? Has he come into your life and disturbed it? Has he not just unclogged the drain but torn down walls in your house and reshaped the entire house? Has the weight of who he truly is become the absolute authority over every room in your house, not just the Sunday morning room, but the basement too, (laughs) and the attic too. What's up there? Has he come to have authority over all, every part of your life? Has that dawned on you? The only time you think about Jesus and spend time with him is on a Sunday morning, then I'm not sure he's doing more in your house than unclogging a drain, and maybe not even that. If you are disturbed by Jesus, that's a good sign. (laughs) If he's turned your life upside down, that's a good sign. It had become a, a loving power, Paul says, of God. A call on their lives has it for you. I'm talking too about people maybe that have said, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God for 30 years. Has he disturbed your life though? Is he moving walls and building new wings? It become a loving power to them. Because that, the gospel had come to Thessalonians, they bore the marks then of the, the remodel of the house. We looked at who they are, but how are they living? Remember, not just who you are, but how they're living too. The marks of their lives weren't what made them a Christian. But the marks came. Remember, the marks don't make them a Christian. The gospel comes to them. That's the power. But the marks they had came from a family resemblance. Did you see that study article show up? All kinds of news sources uh, the last month or so. It was a, a study uh, a doppelganger study. You know what that is? We got a picture coming up here. It recently came out in the news. A doppelganger means someone who looks like you, actually, a lot like you, but isn't actually an identical twin and probably isn't even a family member. You see behind me some doppelgangers. Those aren't family members. Those are not identical twins. How about those guys at the top left? And yet, oh, these women here, actually all of them, <laughs> They look so much alike. And scientists have been studying these lookalikes uh, recently. And they concluded, that, get this, that probably, given the way the world is made up with as many people in it, we probably each have one out there. 
Can you imagine turning the aisle and cuts first and you see yourself, whoa. <laughs> Did you get the milk? You're supposed to get the milk. I mean, that's weird. That is really weird. But probably most of us have one out there. But what's interesting is as they studied them, and these people didn't know each other actually, most of them. But as they studied them, they found that they had also many similarities that went beyond just their look. They had similarity in weights. There were similar lifestyle factors, like even down to like smoking and non-smoking. They had similar behavioral traits and similar education levels, actually. That is, yeah, that's weird. You're right. But what surprised them was that these people also had, at some level, a shared kind of DNA, similar genetic makeup. And they weren't family members, but there was something about the genetic makeup that caused them to be really similar to each other. We know this happens in family, don't we? You know, siblings look alike a lot of times. Um, you know, kids look like their parents or mannerisms. Like, oh, my wife has said to me, oh, you look just like your dad when you did that. Have you heard that before? Yeah, right, you've heard that. When Paul describes the true Christian in verse 3, he says, I know the gospel has come. I know you're in Jesus Christ because I can see the true DNA marks of Jesus, of God's family in you. You look like him. You look like him. You look alike. You're a doppelganger for Jesus, he's saying. And what did that look like? Here's our three. They had a working faith. They had a laboring love. And they had an enduring hope. A working faith, a laboring love, and an enduring hope. Now, Paul's not saying here that these are the, these are the qualities that a super spiritual Christian has, or only a disciple has, he is saying these are the marks. These are the marks of a life that the gospel has truly come upon, that Jesus has truly come upon. They're the marks of any true Christian, actually. Remember, this is a letter to the church. And again, let's not just personalize them as if they're all just internal heart states. We'll see that they, are, they do spring from hearts captured by Jesus, but they're all thought of here for Paul in the local context of a body of a church, a local church body, working outwards to others with these traits of faith, love, and hope. And he even puts them in a weird order here, doesn't he? Usually it's, I think, faith, hope, and love. He puts hope at the end here. It's kind of curious. They're outward words. They're, 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 they're productive words, faith and love and hope. God-directed and other-directed, we're going to see here. The first was a working faith, or in other words, you'd say a faith that produced works. Paul sounds like James here, doesn't he? Faith without works is what? Dead, dead yes. Faith without works is dead. Paul sounds like James here. They might say it a little differently, but they're saying something very similar. These are good things done in service to God. Probably here in this letter, what Paul's thinking of when he says you've got a working faith, he's thinking of their evangelism. He's thinking of in this context of the spreading of the gospels we'll talk about in a moment that came from them. They had an outward-looking faith that produced works or working faith. Second was this, a laboring love or a labor prompted by love, you might say. God's love had been poured out into their hearts and it was an agape love here. Agape love, the Greek word, like a love for all, a love not only for God, but other people and disciples, but also those outside the church as well. They were a loving people. 
Paul said in Romans 5, another one of his letters, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, he's saying it in a similar way as this letter. The powerful spirit had come to them. The gospel had been poured into them. It had been given to them. The active work of God, it's been given to them and to us too. We have the same gospel. And they had enduring hope. Or you might phrase it this way, an endurance inspired by hope, as the commentator G.K. Beale put it. An endurance inspired by hope. So the faith was directed upward to God and belief, but also living out. The faith was directed upward to God, the love to others, definitely out to the people around, and the hope was directed to the future. You can also put it this way, that their love, uh, their faith was directed to the past work and promises to God, their love worked out in the presence, and their hope looked towards the future. What future? The return of Jesus Christ. And every chapter of this letter ends with a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that every week. The imminent return of Jesus. Then he could come at any time. It's a triad. It's three. The qualities describing what a genuine Christian and church look like. So first it was this reminder and this assurance, loved by God, chosen by God, see these things working out in us because this power had gripped them. Second, it's a description. So first was a reminder. Number two here is a description. Paul describes now in verses 5 through 8 a church centered on the gospel and disciples shaped by the gospel. This description of a church that has the gospel at its heart and allows it to work from the inside out, shaping the culture of the church, shaping their collective lives as they live together and build their family. He says in verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He's saying there, that verse begins with an and there. He's connecting this idea of thankfulness that he expressed at the top of the letter for their love God gave them, the choosing that God had done in their life. He's connecting it here. I'm also thankful that you've become imitators of Jesus. Why were the Thessalonians attracted to Jesus? Do you know? Do you know? Paul kind of says it here. He says, they were attracted first not to Jesus. They were first attracted to his disciples who were imitating Jesus. They were first attracted to to Paul. He says, you know how I lived among you. It says in our text, you know how I lived among you. They were first attracted to these guys. He's defining discipleship for us. He's defining it as, as imitators or as we've been putting it at our church lady lately as apprentices. An apprentice. They became apprentices of the gospel, apprentices of Jesus. He defines it. You're imitators is the word he uses. You've imitated him. Like a doppelganger, right? If you've been around Bethany Church this past year, you've heard of something called the Vine Project. Essentially what that is, to boil it down to something really simple, is a team of about five people in our church that have been tasked with clearly defining the biblical definition of discipleship and then tasked with kind of looking at our church and the ministries of our church and assessing and directing the culture of our church 
and ministries, to be a place that helps disciples make disciples. If that's who we're to be, we, we need to be about that. We took a break for the summer where the team's about to get going in September again to do the second half of this project. We've finished the first half. But in the first half of this project, project we answered the question, well, what is a disciple? And the word that we liked the most that we thought would resonate in our context of Camby and our culture was this idea of an apprentice. An idea of an apprentice. We really liked that word and all it entailed of, of some of the trades and some of the work where you come alongside somebody and you train and you apprentice with them. Here was something we wrote in this document we put together where we talked about what is a disciple. We said, when someone becomes a, becomes a disciple, here's the quote, a disciple then commits to a lifelong apprenticeship to Jesus by learning and following him through daily repentance and faithful obedience to the gospel. By the power of the Spirit, apprentices of Jesus take up their cross and giving up their own way and aligning their ambitions, loves, and goals with Jesus. And this apprenticing is done primarily within the transformational apprenticing community of the church. Imitators, Paul says in here, another word you could use, and we have used this Vine Project team, apprentices. An apprentice carries the idea of whole life, all of life, a robust, full, rich, learning and imitating of Jesus. You can't apprentice alone, can you? I mean, you can't do that. And, I'm, and it's a good thing that that's so. You go, you stand upon the shoulders of other men and women who've got the wisdom, the experience, and the knowledge. You can't apprentice, you can't disciple alone. The idea of a disciple being disconnected from a local church has no, no founding, no basis in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible. That's just not a thing. It's, it would never even cross Paul's mind. That would be the marker, probably for Paul, that someone was not a disciple, actually. And he would probably would have been really firm about that. This was done by living life together. The disciple became a doppelganger, a mirror image of Jesus. Jesus, they had Jesus' DNA. They had his spirit. It was inside them. Well, how did they mirror him? Verse t- 6 tells us there. They imitated Jesus. They had joy in the midst of affliction. It was a primary marker for Paul. They had joy in the midst of affliction, a joy from the Spirit. But here's the challenge for us, for you. You and I are to live in such a way and actually have a desire. Do you have this desire? That others would imitate you. Hmm. That's a different level, isn't it? That's a different challenge. Do you have that? You might be thinking, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Those are the original disciples. Like, they were with Jesus face to face. And, and you know, Pastor Jeff, I'm an introvert, so count me out for this one. <laughs> Having someone imitate my life. I don't want people imitating me too much. That's, that's too much pressure. But look at it. The resources weren't within them. So really, when they were imitating them and Paul and Silas and Timothy, it was from the Spirit. The resources weren't their own. When they imitated Paul, they were imitating Jesus because Paul had become a doppelganger for Christ. He'd become an image, a mirror image of him. So while the power comes from another source, we need to foster a life. If people are to imitate us, guess what that means? You have to have people around you in your life. You have to live in a community and amongst people. The power comes from another source, but we've got to be surrounded by people for them to see our lives inside the church 
but also outside in your life. And you also, you might say, okay, well, that's just, I can't do that. It's too hard. It's the apostles, you know. Uh, I'm kind of more introverted. I, we don't, he doesn't give us that excuse. But you also might say, well, this kind of, you might try to avoid this too with a, maybe a false humility. I mean, who am I to be imitated by others? Who am I to be imitated by others? Or, or you know, as if you're asked to lead in the church, that happens. And a lot of times we do hear, well, you know, I, I'm not cut from the same cloth as uh, so-and-so who leads. But Paul's saying you are. All of us. I mean, everybody's going to lead in every type of role. But we can't also use a false humility that says, you know what, I'm not the kind of person that's to be imitated by others. And maybe you're right, actually. Maybe the Lord is needing to do more than unclog the drain with you. <laughs> maybe he's needing to bust down every wall in the house. Maybe. Or demo some walls. But, but see, we have each other for that, too. Let's get a bunch of, you know, demo. Not like that. But what I mean is he's writing to the entire church. We have a context for this. We don't have to be demoed and go through that. And it is a painful process at times, isn't it? We don't have to go through it alone. We're, we're, we're a beam, a wall. We're part of the same body. He's writing to the entire church. It's a group project. You see, verse 7, he expects all of them. All of them, he says in verse 7, you became an example to all the believers too. All those outside the church. It's a group project to the surrounding people. Here's what they did. They became examples. They imitated, but they became examples by doing so of the gospel in their life and in their word. In their life and in their word. This means, here's what this means. If we're doing this together and it's, all of us need to be kind of rearranged by Jesus and his spirit and the word, here's what that means. You are going to have to be around in the church people who are different than you. People who make you uncomfortable. And not just in the church, but if we're to have any impact at all in our community, people outside the church. People who look different than you, sound different than you, believe different than you. Yeah, I've heard, we've heard a lot lately of, um, you know, the polarization of America. And, um, you know, media has been fueling and feeding that just as much. And you're right, there's a polarization in America, but do you know it's not as bad as the media wants you to believe it is? The fringe on each side is probably so much less than the majority. But you wouldn't know that by looking at the news, would you? You would think that every other person who's either different than you in some other way, culture, politically, maybe even religiously, is just, man, the enemy. That's what you would think. And a lot of us believe that. But we're actually much more alike than we realized or that the media would want us to believe. But this letter from Paul is telling these Thessalonians, I mean, they're being persecuted. He's, he's basically telling them, if you're going to have any impact, if your life is going to stand out, we're going to have to be around people that make us uncomfortable and that are different than us. You've seen, we've seen a lot of people flooding different areas too. We're, we're aligning with, you know, Democrats are moving to the coast and everyone else is going in. But if we all leave the coast, what happens to Oregon? What happens? What happens? I mean, Texas is going to be a really great place, but what happens to the place we left? We're going to have to be around people that make us uncomfortable. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. 
surrounding towns heard so much about Jesus from these people. You know what Paul said? He said, you've kind of put me out of a job, Thessalonians. That's what he said there. He's like, I don't need to even say anything. You've spread it so much. The surrounding towns, they've heard it so much. You put me out of a job. Your faith has gone everywhere, he said. I don't need to say anything. The church had sounded forth of the words that Paul used. Sounded forth the word spread. I'm asking for some help again this morning with this one. I need your help. Because I want us to really get what this means here. And I think the kids can probably do this better than the adults, kids. But on the count of three, I'm going to count to three. And this is totally unorthodox, and we would never hardly ever do this in our church. But on the count of three, I want you just to use your voice and make a loud noise. Some of you are like, I'm out of here. I'm gone. This was my home church, but no longer. Um, I just want you to scream. And kids, I want you to beat the adults at this. Can you do this? Like, I'm going to go one, two, three, and I'm going to just go, ah, and I'm going to go like this. I want us to stop. I don't think we can make this room echo because of the sound treatment back there, but I just want us to get the, the point of this. You going to help me on this? Please don't let the kids just be alone on this. Ready? We're going to do this. One, two, three. It's ah! pretty good. A couple of you just woke up. I saw that. That was pretty good. This, right, some, for some reason, right around here, it was a little louder. I'm glad I got your back. Um, See, this is what sounding forth meant. That's exactly what sounding forth meant when Paul said the gospel sounded forth from them. It means like a loud clap, a loud noise, a loud bang, a gonging cymbal or thunder is what Paul says when he says the word sounded forth from you. The gospel was reverberating so much inside that local church in their hearts that it echoed outside of their walls and into the community. Like a loud shout like we just did. So much so that Paul said, I don't even need to come back to the area anymore. What if our lives, in action and word and deed, I don't recommend you go up and scream in somebody's face, but what if our lives, and as they have for many decades here at Bethany Church, but what if it continued and it grew, grew and it blossomed even more into this overwhelming, resounding, beautiful sound and beautiful lives of those who love Jesus? And we echoed out more and more into our community. The center on the gospel, shapes by the gospel, was our, point, our second point here. Paul's saying the more we center our lives on the gospel and on Jesus Christ as a church, the more we're shaped by the gospel as a church, the more we'll overflow, sound forth, echo into our community. First, it was a reminder. Second was a description. Third is an encouragement. Paul encourages a church waiting on Jesus while they work for Jesus. What's our time? We've got to end it soon. Waiting on Jesus while, we, while they work. In verse 9 through 10, Paul gives us a fantastic summary of the gospel. Take a look at it real quick. Uh, nine, uh, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. That's, they're hearing how much they love the apostles. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the, serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a great definition of the gospel. To turn from idols to serve the living God, working for Jesus while they wait for his rescue from heaven. But here's the challenge for these verses. What is Paul talking about there? The Thessalonian church was a bunch of converted Jews. Were Jews idol worshipers? They were not. They worshiped the one true God. And, and the Greeks that were converted were already kind of uh, God-fearers. 
They weren't idol worshippers. So why does he write to this church and say, I know you became Christians because you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They were already serving the living, true God as Jews. What could he be talking about? Well, let's take a look at this, the gospel, that they, as they wait this gospel story. It became their story. It became their rescue story. I think I only got one line in there, but I liked their rescue story better, so fit it in there. As they wait, the gospel story becomes their rescue story. Here's what he's getting at for them when he says, turn from idols. Every single person in this room and in the world knows they need to be rescued from the coming wrath. Everyone. Everyone in the world. Paul is saying here, the gospel tells us this. We have this sense that you're not okay. I have this sense that I'm not okay. Everyone. Everyone has this idea that I need to be rescued. And we wait for something to rescue us. We all have the sense that something's wrong. And we have to prove ourselves to be or, or, or be rescued, one or the other. Well, the reverse is true. We're all trying to find something to rescue us, to make us feel like we are okay and things are going to be okay. And whatever that thing is in your life, and for the Thessalonians, it wasn't statues they bowed to. They were God-fearing Jews. But whatever that thing is in your life, it becomes an absolute necessity to us. Paul calls that an idol. He calls it an idol. It becomes our rescue story. But every other story apart from Jesus, every other rescue that you think or anybody in this world thinks that's going to actually rescue them, it actually turns them into a slave. That's what an idol does. And it will never get rid of the wrath to come like Jesus will, as Paul said. Do you know who understands this story almost better than anybody? Disney. We've talked about them before as an example. Disney understands this truth better than anybody, that all humans need to be rescued. And they've got a version of it for both boys and girls. And it's not necessarily wrong. I'm not saying don't watch a movie, Disney movie, because of that. But think about it. Think of the Cinderella story for girls. Every girl just needs a prince in shining armor to rescue them. Lift me out of my slaving life. Rescue me. Save me. Give me the good life. I need to be rescued. There's a reason that movie's been around for 80 years, however long it's been. Every, just girl, needs a, every girl just needs a prince in shining armor. For men... Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> or some other version. The Hunchback, is that another Disney movie? Men, we don't like ourselves a lot of the times. We see things in us we don't like. But if I just had the beautiful girl who would see beneath all the fur <laughs> and look beneath this mess and love me for who I am and, and kiss me, I will be okay. She will rescue me. You see... We all know we need to be rescued from the coming wrath. And so as they wait for the risen Jesus to rescue them, they're waiting because they know he, res he will rescue them from the wrath to come. That's what he's going to do. It's just that the Christian story becomes the rescue of Jesus coming from heaven for us. How do you know then if one of your primary story, one of the primary things you want to rescue is an idolatrous one? How do you know that? Just get practical. What do you do? You look at the worry in your life. You look at the anger in your life. You look at the stress in your life. You look at the, your fears and your emotions, wherever they get out of control, and you follow them back down to the source. And when you get to that source, it's probably something that's feeling threatened inside of you. And that's why you're responding in anger or in fear or in anxiety or worry. 
And you'll find it there that a lot of times that's something Paul says you'll turn from as an idol to the living God. Look, there's nothing else that can truly rescue you and I. Nothing. Nothing in life. And there are a lot of good things that, that we make into those idol God things. There's nothing else that can truly rescue. It's not freedom or Christ. Well, I just wanted, I don't want that, 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 that I don't want that. Like, if, if you don't go to Christ, you're somehow free. No, no, no. Paul's saying here, apart from Christ, we're all enslaved. Your freedom could be to you, I'm just going to live however I want. That's, the, that's a freedom to self, a freedom to your own desires. It's not freedom or Christ at all. It's actually slavery and freedom in Christ. That's actually what it is. It's a paradox. When you see actually that there is one who is the most handsome prince, a beautiful man who lived that life, there's a beauty who sees beneath your furry, beastly ugliness <laughs> and still, still grabs you anyways, still wants you anyways, still kisses you anyways. Because there's the one who took the wrath. That's what he says. And he lives. And he's coming back. He's coming back. They live with this enduring, longing hope for tomorrow. The the song we're going to sing in a minute has these words. They're coming up here. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. We sing it with me. Because he lives. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living. 